0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. What a wonderful privilege it is to gather and praise our God. What a privilege it is to sing those words to the Lord. You know, I was talking with my wife recently, and as we think about the beginning of our service, how it opens up with a recognition of God's holiness and and then our sinfulness. And we were just discussing how really a, a deep, And wide understanding of human sinfulness really is necessary to understanding the glory of Christ. Because when we see how sinful we are, when we see how much sin there is in the world and what a great evil and affront to God sin is, and we realize that Christ was perfectly sinless and that he conquered this awful thing called sin. It just heightens our understanding of who Jesus is. A, a small view of human sin, a trivial view of human sin, will breed a very small view of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we start our service with God's holiness and our sinfulness, and, and we walk our way through being assured of the salvation that we have through Jesus, the sin-conquering Redeemer. Yes, the one who can even conquer human Sin, Take away our sin, guilt before a holy God, and who can transform our hearts so that we truly and deeply love the Lord. What a miracle every single conversion is. And as I was thinking this morning about preaching, it just struck me what a wonderful thing it is that every Christian you meet is just a a little universe of God's goodness. Just a little universe of... Of stories of God's faithfulness and kindness, and, and the way that God has transformed a sinful, self seeking heart to one who loves Him and loves neighbor. So we rejoice this morning as we consider the glory of our God and the glory of His gospel. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 21. <coughs> we are in verses 18 to 32. Exodus 21. 18 to 32. I want to thank Daniel for preaching last week from 1 Peter, and I'm grateful to him and to Julianne for the time he spent preparing that very rich and applicable teaching for us. It really was a blessing, brother, so thank you. Today we return to Exodus, and specifically, we are going back to law school. We are currently in uh, deep in the legal material of the ancient Israelites as as given by God. This is, this is Law School 101, going back to uh, the law as given in Exodus. And as I was uh, thinking recently, you know, this is it, just on a purely historical level, it's intriguing to be going through this ancient uh, piece of, of human law. And we know that this is divine law. This is, this is law given from the Lord to his people. And what's fascinating is you can take, and we'll we'll mention this a little as we go through, but you can take the law of the Lord, the law of the Hebrews, the Mosaic law, and you can compare that to other ancient laws. And you can see the glory of it, the justice of it uh, in uh, distinction from those ancient laws, like the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, I've had the privilege of seeing that in person, the, the stela, the, uh, the piece of um, stone that it's in, engraved on. It's incredible when you just think how old this is, this ancient law code. But here we have preserved for us over 3,500 years the law of Moses, God's law given to his people in glory on Mount Sinai through Moses. So we're back to law school, back to the legal material here in chapters 21 to 23. The Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20, and these are followed by the Book of the Covenant, as it is called, in the next three chapters. Uh, And you you may wonder where do we get this reference to the Book of the Covenant? Why is it uh, that chapters 21 to 23 are called the Book of the Covenant? And that's because they are called that in chapter 24. So let me read to you from verse 7. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So you'll remember that after the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people are so terrified of the Lord. They're so afraid because God has revealed himself in such glory and power and majesty that they say to Moses, you go speak to God and you get the message and you give it to us. And so, the book of the covenant, the content of the book of the covenant is given only to Moses and is communicated to the people. The Lord is giving his law to his people, Israel, and it will govern his covenant relationship with them. Hence the name, the book of The covenant. What that reminds us of? We need to kind of zoom out as we get. We're going through these laws, this legal material, which we know is fulfilled in Christ, uh, and we know that that we have been made alive in Christ. Though we could not keep the law, Christ kept it in our place and died in our place for our law breaking. As we go back to these laws, we need to zoom out and remember that this really is the stipulations of the covenant between God and Israel. And what that reminds us of is that it is all about relationship with God. This is the means by which the people will relate to a holy God. God is inviting the people. Every one of these laws is is God extending an invitation for his people to know him, to walk with him, to have a relationship with him. And that just tells us that it really is, at the end of the day, all about our relationship with Christ. I was telling our kids in family worship recently that it, Christianity is not about doing this and not doing this and making sure that you, that you keep these certain disciplines. All of that is important, and we won't grow as Christians without discipline. But we recognize that Christianity is entirely about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ a sinner and his or her relationship with the savior that's what it is to be a christian it is to know christ and treasure christ and have christ in this new covenant as i've said before These rules or laws or judgments represent the outworking of the Ten Commandments. And so we get the Ten Commandments stated for us. And then the book of the covenant is the outworking, the outflow of these Ten Commandments. And while they are not comprehensive, covering every conceivable scenario, and given the complexity of human life and the brokenness of human beings, uh, it would be impossible for a law to be comprehensive truly given all of the different scenarios that could happen. So they do not do that. They are not comprehensive, but they do provide paradigms that enable judges to adjudicate various kinds of situations. And that reminds us of the importance of wisdom. That God gives wisdom to interpret. God gives wisdom for application. Gives wisdom to apply his truth to the lives of his people. And the manifold scenarios that there would be. We need wisdom from the Lord. They needed it in the old covenant. And we need wisdom today as well. And in fact... As we think about these various scenarios, these various situations, that is what we get today. Various kinds of situations involving personal injury. So as we come to our text, Exodus 21, 18 to 32, we are looking at various situations involving personal injury. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at capital crimes with three categories. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Uh, These crimes that would bring the death penalty, intentional homicide, injury to parents, striking a parent or cursing a parent, and involvement in kidnapping. These, according to God's justice, according to God's law, are deserving of death and were punishable by death under the Mosaic Covenant. Today, we move from clear-cut capital crimes to situations involving personal injury that may lead to death and that may warrant the death penalty, but not necessarily. And as we see today, there's complexity and nuance involved as uh, there is personal injury possibly leading to death. So the title for the sermon this morning as we go back to law school is Harm Scenarios. Harm Scenarios. So if you would please stand with me as we read these verses together. Chapter 21, verses 18 to 32, harm scenarios. And by the way, you'll see this language, uh, win, win, win. You'll see that carried over into the following verses. But what we find is after verse 32, the focus shifts from personal injury to personal property. And so the shift the sh- there's a shift from uh, assault and, and murder and killing to stealing and theft and negligence that involves the loss of property so verses 18 to 32 this is the living word of God when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff he who struck him shall be clear Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm... The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. But if he knocks out the tooth, or if he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule." If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. You can go ahead and be seated. These are appear to be obscure passages. These are the passages oftentimes you go through church you never even hear talked about uh, because they just are deemed irrelevant or too obscure for a Sunday morning. But we want to take all of God's word and be edified by it, believing that all scripture, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So we come to this passage, and we see, just without any of the details in view, we see the glory of God's justice. And we understand what is going on when we read something like Psalm 119. We read Psalm 119, and we, 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 it, gets, we, we, it sounds so glorious and beautiful and pious, but what we recognize is that the psalmist is meditating on words like these constantly throughout Psalm 119. Your precepts, your rules, your statutes, your laws, and just the glory of it and the savoring of it and all that it says about God was enough to lead the psalmist to worship in that way, not to boredom and a desire to cast It aside. And so we come to this passage asking the Lord to reveal Himself to us and to lead us by the hand to that same attitude that we read, for example, in Psalm 119. So let's pray for that. Let's ask the Lord's grace in this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these laws under the old covenant. We thank you for how they reveal human sinfulness and culpability. We thank you for how they show us our inability to perfectly keep your law and how they drive us to the Savior. Father, we thank you that Jesus died for all of our law-breaking in all of the laws that we have broken, in all of the ways that you have put forth your will for us and we have chosen in our rebellious hearts to go our own way. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. We praise you, Lord, that you have laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. We glory in Christ Jesus, our Savior, this morning as we come to your law. We thank you that it shows forth his perfection and our need for him. God, we thank you for the wisdom that you give us as we read your law and we thank you for the view of your justice and how it helps us in loving our neighbor, how it helps us as we go out even onto the highway and think about our automobiles, how we think about our property, how we think about uh, the ways in which harm could be inflicted on other human beings, how we think about the sanctity of human life. Father, we praise you that you guide us by the hand in these things. And we ask this morning that you would give us ready hands and hearts and feet, that we would be attentive and that you would use this to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. We thank you for this time together as believers, this time as a family, to fellowship with one another, to be encouraged, edified by one another, and to hear your praises and be a part of your praises sung corporately. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So these verses, verses 18 to 32, give us five scenarios very clearly laid out. When this happens, when this happens, when this happens. Five scenarios involving personal injury or harm. Personal injury that does not result in death. Personal injury that does result in death. And we can group them into three scenarios categories. This is one of the great, this is one of the challenges of teaching scripture is trying to figure out how to divide the text. And there there are several ways that you could do this. You could go through each scenario and just sort of explain it and have five points. You could group them with the first two together and the second set of two and the last one. But what I've done is group them in these three ways. So fighting men, wounded slaves, and aggressive animals. I think it can be divided in Uh, in, In terms of these three overarching scenarios, so fighting men, verses 18 to 19, and then 22 to 25, wounded slaves, 20 to 21, and then 26 to 27, and then finally, that last chunk being devoted to aggressive animals. So let's start with fighting men. Look at verses 18 to 19 and 22 to 25 with me. Let's get these clearly in view. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, in other words, he just goes on about his life as normal, he who struck him shall be clear or exonerated. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed." When men strive, and then dropping down to 22 to 25, when men strive together, so you see we're still dealing with men fighting, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be, be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, strike for strike. So here we have one very well-known phenomenon. Two men getting into a fight. Uh, you see it very early on, on the playground, when men in seed form, <laughs> little boys, uh, begin to fight, quarrel, argue. Uh, that arguing, quarreling, breaks out into a fight, and there's the shoving. Of course, we know that gets nastier. Uh, And more uh, painful and injurious as those boys become teenagers and then men. But we get this age-old phenomenon of two men fighting. It, It is as old as civilization. And here we get two scenarios. First, two men arguing in which one strikes or hurts the other. So this is an escalated argument. And then second, two men fighting in which an innocent bystander, specifically a pregnant woman, is struck. So let's look at each of these. We're going we're to take some time to look at each of these uh, scenarios within this larger category. So first, an argument that leads to blows. No details are, give, are given here. We're not given a lot of substance about it. How it happened Where it happened, when it happened, what were the circumstances leading to this. None of those details are given because this is a paradigm situation. It would be up to judges to evaluate the nuances of each case. Back to the idea of wisdom. That uh, there are a whole host of reasons why a fight between two men could happen. And there's a whole range of culpability as you think about, you know, what's the first question that's always asked? Who started it? Right? So that's the the most basic question. But here you have one in which there is a strike, a definitive strike where a quarrel turns into a physical fight. This is dealing with an argument that leads to one person being hurt. One person strikes another with a part of his body, like his fist. And here that would involve also a foot or a Maybe a headbutt. I <laughs> mean, You could think of anything that could be used on the person's body. The fist here is a stand-in for a, a bodily member. Or an object like a stone. It could be something else that's picked up nearby. A stone being a natural object. And here it's not a weapon because there's not this a level of premeditation here. It's not someone who's brought a weapon ready to fight. It's someone who's angry and the quarrel turns into them picking up something nearby and whacking the, over, the other person with it. And this could lead to two possible outcomes, as are explained here. If the man dies, then the striker is guilty of his murder. And we go back to intentional murder, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Second, if he doesn't die, but becomes bedridden for a time and later recovers, then the striker is exonerated, but he must pay for his lost time and recuperation. And the way the Hebrew reads, he must be thoroughly recuperated. Uh, Recuperating, he must be recuperated. He must be healed. Uh, He must be entirely brought back to his normal state. Whatever it takes for that to happen, that is the obligation on the person who struck him. Now we see The justice here, really, in in a couple of ways, I think it's interesting as you kind of peel back the layers, you see the justice involved. First of all, it provides a limitation. It does not allow the struck man to take advantage of the situation. And, of course, this is rampant in our day uh, with personal injury lawsuits and all the rest. You go into the bathroom and you slip and all of a sudden you want $5 million, right? You broke your knee but you want five million dollars. That's the sort of And Of course, the lawyers cost half of that. We see the craziness in our legal system as the lack of justice prevails in situations of harm. Of course, that situation is a little different. In this case, where there is even a direct assault on another person, there are still limitations involved for the victim. He cannot spend the rest of his life milking the person who struck him. And yet the person who struck him is responsible to take care of what was lost and to make sure that this man is healed. So it provides a limitation. It protects both the perpetrator and the victim. And there we see the grace of God. The grace of God even for the perpetrator involved in that situation. A second way we see the justice of it is that it recognizes the mutual culpability that is involved in quarreling. Uh, Yes, uh, there's one man who struck another man, but both men are involved in quarreling. Both men are lashing each other with the tongue. Both men are provoking one another. Both men are heated and angry and all the rest. And we know what it looks like in ourselves and in others. So what we find here is that there is inevitably mutual culpability in situations like this. James chapter 4 verses 1 to 2 speaks of this quarreling. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why is it that people quarrel? Why do people fight is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And I think we can add to that also the fact that we are, we are quick to anger. And we are quick to not bear an offense. We are much quicker to respond to an offense than we are to bear an offense. And why? Because of our pride. Our pride tells us that we must be vindicated immediately. You can't offend me. Who do you think you are? Who do you think I am? Our pride responds in ways that lead to quarreling. How much better it is to bear an offense. How much better it is to be yelled at and walk away. How much better it is uh, to even have someone get in your face and you turn and walk away, Or to try to bring peace to the situation with gentle words instead of the harsh speech that Proverbs says stirs up wrath. And so we see even in this short little space here that, that there's just the justice of it. The beauty of it in which both individuals are protected. In which culpability is not just on the surface but it goes down into the context as a whole. Second. An argument, or second, the second uh, scenario that we have here under this category is an argument that leads to the striking of a bystander. And here the law deals specifically with a pregnant woman. So I think we're meant to understand here, not just any bystander, although it would be, uh, Im- the implication would be for uh, another kind of innocent bystander, maybe an older person or a child who gets struck. But it's important to recognize here that the paradigm situation involves a pregnant woman. Both the woman and her child are valued. Do you see that? The life of the mother and the life of the unborn. Or else, as I said before, anyone could be, could be put here. This is, this is not just about the innocent bystander. This is about the value of that innocent bystander and understood to be pregnant here with innocent bystanders within her. The unborn. In this situation, the woman's children come out prematurely. In other words, the trauma of being hit or shoved induces early labor. That's what is in view here. The woman gives birth prematurely. And this may or may not involve harm. Uh, She could uh, give labor early and it not be a problem. Uh, we, We know that some ladies would love for something to happen. Not like this, obviously, but uh, so that they could give, have, go into labor earlier. Uh, I've talked to some of you ladies who have been going beyond, well beyond, well beyond your delivery date or the date that was set and, and you're wanting to have that baby. So there's various ranges here of time in which this could happen. and In one situation, there is no harm. Now, in the context here, it really has to be harm in general. The, uh, scholars and commentators debate, is this referring to harm to uh, the woman or is this referring to harm to the children or harm to the woman and children? I think it is kept general because both are in view. Uh, the, typically, when, you're, when you have a class, a, a group of people, and you want to identify a category within that group, you specify, but if you're speaking in general terms about anyone just mentioned, you would not specify. And that's exactly what we find. Here in the Hebrew, it is harm in general, harm to either the pregnant woman or her children, harm to the mother or her prematurely born children. And if there is no harm, then a fine is to be placed on the one responsible, as determined by the husband and the judges. And this probably involves a situation where two men fight and the wife of one gets stuck in the middle of it. And you wonder, you know, why is, the wife, why is this pregnant woman being brought into this situation? It seems kind of odd. Why would you just sort of bring a pregnant woman into a situation involving two men fighting? Well, it's probably the case, as, as most have pointed out, that this involves the wife of one of the two men. That as they're fighting, the wife gets involved, maybe trying to break the fight up or help her husband, or the wife is simply there, present, standing in the context of the situation. So if there is no harm, there is still the need to pay for the trauma involved in early-induced labor. But that is all. But if there is harm then equivalent payment must be made. And this is where we get the principle of an eye for an eye. Now, even if you haven't uh, grown up in church or come across these texts, you probably are familiar with this principle generally stated, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, it goes back, and in addition to other ancient law codes, it goes back here in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, to this particular Passage. This is known in legal terms as lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. We read it here in verse 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Do you see how it goes to all of the different ways in which a person can be harmed? And there is the need for equivalency. According to historical accounts and ancient rabbinical teaching, it appears that this typically took the form of payment rather than mutilation. And so the payment would not be just a sum of money, but it would be according to the person's condition. So if, if a poor person were there, it may hurt them in the way deemed equivalent to this particular act to take such and such money. But if it was a wealthy person, you could not take the same amount of money that you would from that person because the wealthier person would not feel the effect of that in the same way. And so what it did was leveled the playing field. It created an equivalent situation for all who would commit crimes. It ensured this equivalency. It also made Certain that there would not be too little or too much. You see, with justice, there, is, there are always two ditches that one can fall into. And I think our society uh, forgets the fact that there are actually two ditches. One ditch is too much, uh, that there is, there is too much penalty, there's too much punishment, there is excessive punishment for a crime. The penalty does not meet the crime. But the other ditch is that there is too little. So we think about uh, the horrific stories we hear of rapists and child molesters and murderers who are let off with these little slaps on the hand. That's an unjust society. That's an unjust legal system that does not take seriously the crimes that are Committed, It can be too much, but it can also be too little. And God's justice demands that it be equivalent insofar as human beings can make it in a fallen world. This is the opposite of what we read in Genesis 4, verses 23 to 24 with Lamech. Uh, we read of this descendant of Cain. It says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And what we need to understand is that attitude in Lamech prevails in human hearts. You smack me once, I will smack you ten times. You wound me, I will kill you. This is the sort of attitude that we find in this violent world. And it was present, we understand, all the way up until Noah, as violence was all over the face of the earth. We understand Lamech's running around everywhere, the violence and the killing. This lex talionis, this law of retaliation, this law of equivalency was meant to protect against that excessive retaliation in which a wound was repaid for killing. We also need to recognize that this is about justice within a community, not personal vengeance. We know this because of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 40. It's amazing what people do with the words of Jesus, as though Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount undo uh, the legal system of societies. That's not the case at all. We recognize that uh, that is still in effect. That principle is wise for all peoples and was still in effect in the Old Covenant as Jesus was teaching within the Old Covenant. But what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 5 is personal retaliation, personal vengeance, getting things right yourself. Matthew 5, 38 to 40 says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's the beauty of Christ's teaching is that the Christian is one who is going to be most apt on the face of earth to bear an offense. The Christian is going to be the least apt to respond in kind. The least apt. to, To strike when struck, to flip the bird when flipped off on the interstate, to get angry and yell when yelled at. The Christian is one who bears the offense, turns the other cheek. This is radical teaching from our Lord regarding personal character and conduct. And it would have been absolutely contrary to Roman society, to the honor culture, of the ancient world. And let me say this, it is radically contrary to the honor culture that we have even here in our country and that we find across the world. We must assert self. We must vindicate self. And here Jesus calls us not to seek an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but to bear the offense with joy before the Lord. What an incredible ethic Jesus gives us. As we come to the end of this section, I want to emphasize two things uh, that I think these verses 18 to 19 and 22 to 25 emphasize, and that and the sanctity of human life. These are two big implications that come out of this legal material. And so self-control first. We recognize that a situation that would involve the striking of another person and a situation that would involve a fight that affects a pregnant woman is ultimately or can ultimately be traced back to a lack of self-control. One of the most important things that we can teach our children is self-control. Controlling temper, controlling appetites, controlling impulses. And we see what unchecked impulses and temper, we see what that develops into as as children become teenagers and then become adults. Self-control is a world of protection for the body and soul and reputation of a person. We find it emphasized throughout Scripture The Proverbs says that a person without self control is like a city without walls. It's a foolish person tumbling over himself in his impulses. And we also see here the sanctity of human life the life of the woman, the life of the man who is injured, and the life of the unborn. Life is held in the highest regard in Scripture because we are made in the image of God. The ancient law codes surrounding Israel and prior to and after Israel do not have the same category of being made in the image of God. The Christian thinks about human beings very differently than everyone else. If you believe that human beings are just evolved apes, and you believe that we just happen to be uh, here as a human race, a community of evolved primates, there really is not a lot of value no matter how you slice it. There really is not a lot of value. If you follow that out to all of its implications, there really is no more value to a human life than the life of a chimpanzee in the jungle as you're watching a documentary. At the end of the day, no difference apart from the utility of desiring not to be killed by another. And so we make laws to protect ourselves. The Christian thinks far differently Because we believe that we were created distinct and unique as human beings in the image of our creator. And so we see here fighting men. That's the first category. The second is wounded slaves. Look with me at verses 20 to 21 and 26 to 27. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, He shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. In the ancient world, slaves were pure property, had zero rights. A master could do with his slaves what he pleased, but not so in biblical law. As we talked about a few weeks ago, slavery was part of fallen society, that the Lord gives his law to govern human society as it is in a fallen world. This is law in a fallen world, not law in Eden. This is not law given out to human beings as they are there in the garden. This is law given out to human beings who are going to divorce their wives. As we talked about, Jesus teaching on divorce in light of Deuteronomy. People who are going to enslave one another. People who are going to participate in polygamy and have multiple wives. And there are other, other examples in which God's law governs and protects within this fallen Context. Slavery was practiced all across the ancient world, but in biblical law it was governed and controlled and limited. The laws that we find here show a concern to protect the vulnerable, those who could be taken advantage of, those who could be mistreated by their masters. And and it is amazing to me how unbelievers, people who attack the Bible, will quickly come to a passage like this and begin to throw rocks at the Bible. So you can say, see, the Bible permits slavery, the Bible allows slavery, but there's no desire to really look at the details. No desire to see the distinction between biblical law and other ancient laws. No desire to look at the ways In which God is protecting the vulnerable. It's just these blanket accusations and slanderous words against God and His Word. We are given here two scenarios. One involves a situation in which a master strikes his slave with a rod. Maybe the slave is lazy or disobedient, or maybe he or she has committed some deceitful act or stolen from the master. Or maybe the master is simply cruel or has a temper. Either way, the result is a striking with a rod. Now, this scenario comes with two outcomes, as we saw in the last case. If the slave dies immediately, it is treated as homicide and is avenged as such. And presumably this would involve the death penalty. This this is an incredible, think about this, this is an incredible protection for slaves when compared to other ancient Near Eastern law codes such as the Code of Hammurabi and others. Incredible protection for slaves. But if the slave lives on for a little bit, then it is not treated as a homicide. And you may read that and go, whoa, that just sounds, what in the world is going on there? So if the slave dies immediately, then the person is avenged as a homicide. But then if, if the slave lives on for a day or more days, then it's not. Walter Kaiser helps here as he explains, The master is given the benefit of the doubt. He is judged to have struck the slave with disciplinary and not homicidal intentions. And we see here the, the discipline of slaves, and this is, this is carried over. This is connected with the discipline of children in Proverbs. The same sort of language is used, not that children are slaves of their parent. That's a horrible idea, uh, but there is the the... the the same language being used with regard to discipline. Proverbs 29, 19, by mere words, a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. And so what the the writer of Proverbs is saying is, look, uh, you you have to discipline your servant. You can't simply give them words and rebukes and so forth. And we recognize the same carries over to children. You can't just pull them aside and just continue to say to them, hey, don't do this, stop doing this, warning them and warning them and warning them and warning them. Warning them with no discipline, as Proverbs says, "Mere words by mere words, a servant is not disciplined. For though he understands, he will not respond." And you know, as I think about this, I think about Eli's sons in 1 Samuel. There was a man who uh, w- failed to correct, truly correct his evil sons, and he and his sons are held accountable for his sons' evil. So we see here the language of discipline. This is the distinction drawn in the law when it comes to slaves. Judges must determine if it is a disciplinary or a homicidal situation. And we recognize that the line between those two things is, is very thin. As you think about a master with his servant, what was discipline and what was homicide? Well, the distinction is made in terms of days. The penalty for excessive discipline that was not homicidal in nature is the loss of the slave itself. The penalty for murder is that the slave is to be avenged. And this leads us to the second scenario in which it is not just the life of the slave that matters, but also his or her members. In verses 26 to 27, we get the scenario of a lost eye or tooth Even a lost tooth. If a master ruins the eye or knocks out the tooth of one of his slaves, then he must let the slave go free. Even the smallest tooth, maybe even a tooth that's slightly loose, we don't know. But if even a tooth is knocked out, the master must free his slave permanently. This is quite a protection for slaves in the context of the ancient world, and you could even imagine how masters were taken advantage of by it. I mean, you know, if a slave really wanted to be free, he could jostle one of his teeth and make sure that he does something really foolish, and his master whacks him maybe upside the head and the tooth falls out. You could imagine all kinds of situations. I mean, we we understand all the ways that these sorts of things could play out. And what I would say is that this heavily favors the slave over the master. And it recognizes the dignity of the slave's person at the possible and even probable expense of the master. This is remarkable. As one commentator says, remarkably, the surviving ancient Near Eastern legal collections contain, listen to this, no laws addressing hurt done by a master to a slave. Do what you will. He or she is your slave. Property, mere property, like a goat or like a table. Doesn't matter. Not so with the Lord. We see this emphasis throughout Scripture. Job uh, chapter well, let me let me. I didn't read the full quote. <laughs> let me read the full quote. Uh, Remarkably, the surviving ancient Near Eastern legal collections contain no laws addressing hurt done by a master to a slave. And he goes on to say, verses twenty-six to twenty-seven: bestow on the slave a status that is unique in the ancient world. And you ask yourself, well, if if really the the, the Hebrew law is just an assimilation, you know, as as uh, many skeptical scholars will will say that what we what we what we have here is just a borrowing borrowing from other their ancient societies, then why do we get this emphasis on the dignity of the person, even the slave? What it shows us is that there is a distinct difference between the law of God and the law of man. It has the mark of its divinity upon it, we could say. Let me read to you a couple of quotes from scripture about the dignity of slaves. Job 31 verse 15 He's talking about his treatment of his servants. And he says, Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? In other words, this servant of mine, Job says, blameless Job, righteous Job, says this servant is just like me, made in the womb, fashioned by Yahweh, just like me with dignity. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, we hear Paul blasting masters of their servants and slaves, which, as I said, was was all across the ancient world. He says in Ephesians 6, 9, with this strong rebuke, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, master, you with authority, You with the ability to strike, you with the rod in your hand, know this. God's eyes are upon you. The Lord God is watching you, and he is the master over all. And with him, there is no difference between a slave and a free person. All are made in his image. All fall under his sovereign care. And justice and discipline. So thirdly, we come to aggressive animals. So we've looked at fighting men, wounded slaves, and now finally, aggressive animals. Look at verses 28 to 32 as we finish up. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. And the ox shall be stoned. This scenario involves a domesticated animal that attacks, and the ox or the bull here kind of gets picked on, obviously, because that's a it's a it's a pretty. Uh, dangerous animal if it gets aggressive, and the ox or the bull is used here as the paradigm or example. This becomes the paradigmatic situation. You could imagine the same thing happening maybe with a wild goat or something like that. Any animal could become potentially destructive to a human being. It may attack unexpectedly, and in such cases, the owner is not held responsible. However, because of the dignity of human life, the animal must be killed and the flesh uneaten. This is also unique in ancient biblical codes, uh, in the ancient biblical code. This is different from the ancient world, this, this emphasis on the need to kill the animal and not eat its flesh. Genesis 9 verse 5 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life." of man. And so even here, there is the economic motivation for an owner to do everything he can to avoid having his animal attack another human being. Otherwise, he may lose his entire investment in the animal. And uh, I looked up, I looked online how much a bull is today, and someone like Daniel Julianne, they might be able to give us a little more precision here, but uh, between five and ten thousand dollars to purchase a bull today, uh, and I guess that would differ largely from society to society, from country to country. But you can imagine, even for us today, that's a significant investment. In the ancient world, even more so. This would be a tremendous loss of one's investment in the animal. A second possibility is that the owner has been warned that his animal is aggressive. Or it has been reported to him that the animal has attacked in the past. And yet in this case, the owner does not take the necessary precautions. The owner has been told that, hey, your bull is out of control. Your bull has attacked human beings before. This has happened before. In this particular instance, he is careless with human life. In such cases... When his animal kills another, it is to be treated as his own culpable homicide. This is homicidal negligence, whether it is a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl. And this is also unique in the ancient biblical law, in the biblical law from the other ancient laws, in that the child, the woman, is held up with this honor just as a man. That if a woman is killed, the same thing is to be done as would be done if it were a man. This is not. The case in other ancient law codes. All are given the same dignity. The issue here is care and caution. Avoiding negligence. Listening to warning. Caring about the welfare of others. You could think about a situation uh, in which, let's say, you know that your lawnmower shoots rocks out of the side. It, it, it's just it's not. It, it does that constantly, and, and you you mow your lawn, knowing this could happen, but you're just not concerned about the fact that uh, there are kids playing over there next to where you're mowing, or you, you get on the highway in your car, and you know that your car is not really safe either for those who are inside of the car or those on the outside, but you do it anyway because you just can't be bothered with taking care of what needs to be taken care of. Taking these sorts of Liberties with human life is wicked in the sight of God. It reminds us that we ought to avoid negligence and listen to warning and care about the welfare of other people made in God's image. And yet the law makes provision for him to be ransomed. As we find here at the end of our text, a payment made to ransom his life from death. And we read here of payments for slaves... Uh, but this sort of ransom activity, praying for, paying for uh, the redemption of a person, was not permitted under intentional murder cases. As Numbers 35, 31 says, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, and he shall be put to death. You know, as we come to the end of this passage, we get two little pointers To the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice these. They really are here embedded in the text, pointing us to our Savior. And the first is this idea of ransom. This idea of ransom. Here you have a man who is under the condemnation of death. You have a person who, according to the law, deserves death. And what the law makes provision for is that a sum of money, a price, can be paid in order to redeem this person from being in the category of condemned to pardoned or to free. To being in the category of condemned to exonerated. What an incredible difference of Categories. And as we read of this idea of redemption and ransom, we are reminded of the fact that when we come into the world, when our children come into the world, we stand condemned for our sin and condemned to the penalty of death. The Christian gospel has at the heart of it the fact that we are sinners and that we stand under the penalty of death. Here we are awaiting our sentencing, here we are awaiting the punishment for sin, which is death. And the Lord our God sends his son. He sends Jesus Christ, his one and only son, into the world as a ransom to pay for our sin so that we could be free from the penalty of death. And so we read these words in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. Here's my point. Every Christian here this morning Breathing, worshiping, enjoying the Lord, enjoying fellowship with Christians, having the hope of eternal life, is a person who at one time stood in the same situation as this man with a goring ox, standing there condemned to die, and a ransom was paid. And that ransom is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say this to you if you're a child here This morning, you're not a Christian, you haven't trusted in Christ for yourself, understand that this is the gospel, that Jesus came to die for our sins so that a price, the perfect price, could be paid for us so that we could be free of our sins and no longer experience eternal death and separation from God. That is a message not just for our kids, but for anyone here this morning. Who is an unbeliever. And for all of us this morning. Who are believers. That we would rejoice in Christ. Knowing that he has paid the ransom. For our sins. There's a second way that this points to Jesus. And it is this 30 shekels of silver. That you see here at the end. This is the price for a slave's life. And it points us forward. To the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. You'll remember that when Judas goes to betray Jesus, he, he goes to the religious leaders and they pay Judas for Jesus. Judas sells Jesus and he sells him for the price of a slave. Matthew 26 verse 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Judas' heart was dripping with greed. He did not love the Savior. He loved money. And it reminds us of the words that love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, that was Judas's heart dripping with greed. And he says, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, they paid him the amount. A slave. They treated the Redeemer of all, the sovereign King of Israel, the King of the universe, the one through whom the worlds were made and the angels were made. They treated him as a common slave. Here's 30 pieces of silver for slave Jesus. It just reminds us of the sinfulness of man and the evil of the murder of Christ. But it also reminds us from Philippians 2 that Jesus... Became a slave for us. Uh, it was the will of the Father that Jesus would, would become man, that he would become as a slave, that he would die a slave's death on a Roman cross, that he would go to the utter the, the, the depths of humility and lowliness to save us and to teach us what it is to follow him, to wash the feet of his people, to serve others, to be like Christ in humbling ourselves and becoming lowly all the way to the point of death, even if it means that, that we would give our life for our friend, that we would love as Jesus loved. And so as we come to the end of these these laws, these judgments We see here embedded in the text this this glorious jewel, this glorious pointer, these two pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ who kept the law perfectly and died in our place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would massage it and pound it and import it into our souls, God. We pray that your wisdom and your justice and your view of human life, that all of this would fill our hearts and minds with meditations and a desire to grow in character, to grow in likeness to Jesus, to grow in how we relate to other human beings. Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here together this morning in your providence and you have fed us from your word. We pray now that our worship to you would be from pure hearts and in truth, And we thank you for the Lord's Supper that we are about to partake of. We pray that it would be an opportunity for us to rejoice in our identity in Christ and our identity as part of his body. In Jesus' name, amen.